Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Gavin Titley, who is Senior Lecturer in Media Studies at Maynooth University and author of the new book, Is Free Speech Racist? Hi, Gavin. Hello, hello. Good to be here. I'm a big fan. If you've been listening to the podcast, right, for three years, this is Tiso's thing. Listen, you know me for a long time, so all I do, I get bound up by the same things continuously. So, Gavin. Yes, Chantel. <laughs> is free speech racist? I cannot believe that right at the start of this podcast, you're asking me for spoilers. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with that. I was hoping we could, you know, uh, we could build some suspense right. into that question over ten episodes or five series or something. Well, uh, is free speech racist? I mean, the the, I suppose the thing is who's asking the question, and and one of the things that I like about this title, I, I like that it it irritates some people. I have to, you know, admit to my own sort of uh, smallness in relation to that because I think it irritates the right people sometimes. But what what. The way I imagine this title is you can ventriloquize it in different right ways. In other words, I imagine different sort of speaking positions that are articulating this. And, and one of the ones I think which is most to the front in my mind when I think about the title, which by the by came about as a kind of, you know, a slightly sort of uh, playful way of me pitching the book and then the commissioning editor really liked it and kind of that was that in the end. But now if I have to think about it and justify it in retrospect, it's an act of ventriloquism. And one of the, the, the sort of voices that I that I really hear there is the sort of, you know, this the the the, the faux shock of somebody saying what even free speech is racist now in other words everything is racism isn't it so we can't say anything without being accused of being racist you know within those kind of micro rituals and micro interactions which we're all very familiar with i was trying to use it to open out a kind of a slightly bigger sort of set of intersecting i suppose processes and political and cultural dynamics around on the one hand freedom of speech but then why freedom of speech seems to be always held to be in in crisis or particularly conflicted on the question of of racism. I suppose in, in, in putting the two together in the title and the two together in the book, I mean, w- one place I could just mention briefly, um, because, you know, as you said, I, I work actually in a, in a media studies department, being, being quite interested in and working a lot on sort of social theory and race and racism also. But with my sort of media studies hat on, one of the things that I was always just kind of fascinated and a little put out by was the, the freedom with which people would declare, you know, free speech to be in crisis or to declare themselves to be silenced in a context of absolutely abundant, you know, irrationally abundant communication. So we all know that cliche as well, the sort of highly renumerated columnist who every week is being silenced for money in whatever the newspaper might be. But beneath that, again, I was interested in why is it that this notion of freedom of speech in crisis is something which has come to be a way of claiming attention or claiming space in this kind of very frenetic attention economy. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that 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 there being abundant communication means that there is, of course, more democratization, more participation, more potential for communicative emancipation, nothing like that. We all know that the digital media ecosystem is one which is, you know, shaped by surveillance, uh, 
among many other sort of aspects. When we think about freedom of speech, you know, as a practical political demand nowadays, we can see that journalism is under pressure in many contexts. Political protests are hammered by the cops as the sort of, you know, starting proposition in, in, in so many contexts right now as well. So there are many manifest material, political, governmental threats to freedom of speech, which could be, you know, parceled into this notion of, of freedom of speech in crisis, but they're not. Freedom of speech being in crisis is something which attaches itself or is attached to the notion that it's impossible to speak about certain subjects openly or without taboo or to, to, to sort of declare uncomfortable truths or whatever it might be. So that's obviously the point, I suppose, in which it starts to my kind of thinking about or asking questions about maybe we need to think about what we mean by freedom of speech under these conditions, right? Because when we have debates on freedom of speech, a lot of the attraction is to, to, to the normative value. We need to talk about freedom. We need to, we need to, to establish what the limits of freedom are. What are the limits of permissible speech? And that's obviously one very important tradition in thinking of freedom of speech. But as a mate of mine, uh, Nick Reamer, who's a, an Australian linguist, has pointed out, there's very little focus in these debates about the speech and freedom of speech. There's very little focus on communication, how communication functions, how it makes publics, who is heard and who is listened to and who is integrated into these publics and not just who can, you know, who can speak inverted commas, as it were. For me, just following on from that point about the linguistic thing, that's what's always puzzles me, because for me, the people that are always shouting about freedom of speech are people that want the freedom to be a dickhead or the freedom to be racist or the freedom to be xenophobic or the freedom to be Islamophobic. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, which, I mean, what that points to, Chantal, is we also need to think a lot about, you know, the way in which freedom is being understood and the work that freedom is, is, is doing. And I, and I think that that's something we could, you know, profitably spend some time on is the way in which freedom has come to be understood as the absence of opposition, the absence of criticism, almost the absence of anything which resembles unacceptance or a lack of acceptance, not just for the argument, but, you know, for the sort of fundamental premises of that speech as a particular kind of political act. Let, let me start somewhere else with this. One of the things that attracted me to thinking about this politically was obviously the ways in which the far right have been very successful in appropriating freedom of speech as a way precisely of, you know, not just creating political space and claiming political space, but also enacting certain kinds of, of dramas, certain forms of theatre around themselves where they will do something which they, you know, which is, tra- inverted commas, transgressive. Um, and then the idea is that the sort of principal defenders of the of, of, of freedom of speech of the normative idea will step up and say, while we don't agree with the content of this, while we don't agree with the spirit of it, we absolutely defend the right to do so. And then what happens is that within that triangulation, the people who have another way of thinking about this speech as a political act, as a way of occupying space, for example, um, as a way of occupying the street or as a way of occupying media space, those people become the ones that become the problem. Right? The triangular energy focuses on the people who are offended, again, in inverted commas. I, I hope the listeners can hear all these inverted commas that I'm sort of, you know, <laughs> flicking flicking through the air when I, when I use these, these topics. Within that sort of drama, and as you say, you know, you're right, there are people who, it, it's so obvious, it's such a playbook, it's such a ritual. There are people who can kind of reproduce this on a daily basis and gain some attention with it. But the reason that they can do so is because it emerges from, I think, a number of very significant sort of conflicts and differences of understanding around what the freedom and freedom of speech is and what the speech in freedom of speech is. And then particularly the ways that these come come to be articulated around the question of race and racism. In the kind of 
classical like liberal sense we're talking about the freedom of marketplace of ideas the free exchange of ideas freely and i think that's one of the positions people take in your book you gave an example of jonathan pye i will defend the right to anyone to speak like kind of talk shit as long as they don't cause harm and when i read that i instantly thought of mill and self-regarding actions right i can say what i want as long as it doesn't cause harm to anyone do you remember when jonathan pye that when he first started doing that character right when i was reading it in the book it was reminding me i didn't realize that he was playing a character for such a long time and i loved it i thought those videos were brilliant especially because after it was like after brexit we all felt really shit and it was it was like a kind of comedy kind of like shouting and we'd send the videos to each other too and then I found out that this guy is like, he's not the character at all. In fact, he's like the liberal opposite. Yeah. In the book, you talk about the explanation of racism in the same way that David Goodhart says that racism is about an irrational position that you have, a, an irrational opinion about someone based on, what does he even say? Some some shit. That's an abstract that could be appended to most of his writing. <laughs> yeah. I'm agree. literally so bored. I'm so bored of these dickheads. Like, they're so annoying. There was a section of us that were really enjoying the Jonathan Pye interventions. And then we found out that he's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can improve on the conclusions which are already, you know, folded into the question. So, you know, I can only try to elaborate a little bit. I mean, I think to explain, I mean, that's one of the examples that I that I use as a way to try to open out the sort of, inter, you know, what I see as a particular intersection. Certain ways in which freedom of speech is often dominantly understood. And then certain ways in which racism is dominantly understood and then the way that this intersection creates very difficult conditions for anybody who wants to talk about you know the experience of racism or forms of anti-racism that are looking to sort of name and mobilize against racism in the public sphere maybe i'll, I'll lay out a little bit the, the the two senses that intersect in something like jonathan pye but also much more broadly i think in the way in which is a kind of public infrastructure of debate around these issues the thing with freedom of speech as a kind of a phrase is that it's it's something which has become kind of sacralized in a way you know we were joking around beforehand about the kind of voltaire memes right that thing that voltaire never said about defending to the death your right uh for speech becomes this is a sort of way of representing voltaire's thought by evelyn beatrice hall in in her book of 1905 which she interestingly had to write under a male a male pseudonym in order to get it published the fact that he didn't really say this isn't as important as the way in which it sacralizes the notion that freedom of speech means maximal speech maximal communication and maximal respect for, if you like, that level of expression. One of the starting problems for me with this book is that this, when you have that kind of sacralization uh, of, a, of a right which is associated with iconoclasm, with heresy, with radical thought, you've got a problem right there. I find strange about the way in which freedom of speech is so often discussed or debated is that there's a there's a resistance to thinking critically about what's being invoked when we talk about freedom of speech. To question the way in which freedom of speech is understood and mobilized in public is to be sort of I- insufficiently loyal to a settled principle. But the thing is, of course, that it isn't a settled principle outside of the ways in which it's very often invoked in, in contemporary public discourse. And so one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that the notion of freedom of speech has been sort of sacralized it's been taken out of the political struggles through which it's been won and there's something very strange when you sacralize something which has been so central to you know desacralization to iconoclasm to to heresy to radical thought in various sort of ways so one of one of the things that i suppose motivated me is that we need to particularly under such radically changed communicative conditions we need to think about what we mean by freedom of speech not just in the ways in which the debate is often set up which is what are the limits of permissible speech but what 
what is the sort of things we think speech achieves? What are, what are the ways that we think in which public communication functions? And one of the ways I found very, uh, productive in the book to explain this, I drew on, on, on the work of Anshuman Mondal, who's, who's written a lot of interesting sort of stuff on, on kind of conflicting understandings of freedom of speech. And one of the first things he does is, is lay out, you know, Tissa, what you were talking about, a certain, what he calls a kind of, and he's aware that there's a certain sort of reductionism in this. He talks about modern liberal free speech theory. And he uses these kind of spatial metaphors. And he, in a way, he imagines modern liberal sp- free speech theory as a sort of an ice rink, right? You should be able to skate across it, almost frictionless. And that's the exercise of your right. And then at, when you hit the barriers, you're hitting the legitimate restrictions on speech, so legal barriers or whatever it might be. Whereas the way that he asks us to imagine freedom of speech is much more kind of a, a topographical model. I always try to imagine this as, as like a Minecraft or something, you know, where you're building a 3D world. And that speech or discourse flows through a very complex topography where, you know, sometimes it runs up against hard objects. Sometimes it ro- it's able to go around those objects. Sometimes it erodes and changes the nature of the object that it, 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 it sort of flows into. In other words, when we speak, when we communicate in our everyday life, we're operating on a topography or on a terrain where there are always constrictions and restrictions and forms of coercion and always forms of opportunity and forms of freedom and contingent possibility. And so to give an example of what I mean, we can, we can, we can just think of our everyday lives, right? We can think of when, when I teach a class um, and it's, it's in a university, which is about the free exchange of ideas. I do most of the talking and for a student to demand a greater share of that talk would involve a certain kind of social or institutional sanction, most likely, right? There isn't, there isn't a, there's a, of course, a formal freedom to speak, but within the institutional relationship, within the sort of rituals of education, there isn't. And that holds for when we think about conversations, when we think about how we speak in different institutional settings, media settings, legal settings, whatever it might be. So what Mandal is trying to ask us to do is to start from an understanding of speech as not we either have freedom of speech and then we sort of slip away down the slippery slope to a situation where we have less of it, but that according also to how we are positioned, according to our status, according to how we're treated and positioned in society, we have differential positions and possibilities on this kind of topography of speech. And that's a much more realist way of thinking about speech because what it lets us do, and this is what I kind of try to get to in the book, what this lets us do is to say, if we start from the position that every day there is coercion and restriction and closure and foreclosure in how we can communicate. What are the issues that get to be framed as freedom of speech issues in public? What are the issues that can claim that status? And what are the issues that can never mobilize that sort of status? And that's, I suppose, the way that I then sort of build, start to build the, the, the analysis of, of how this works in sort of post-racial contexts. Free speech theory has always been grounded in, in abstractions, right? So you're thinking of it, it's a thought experiment rather than grounded in real life. If we take this kind of thought experiment is extended from the Enlightenment onwards, the, the abstraction makes sense. But if you look at the reality, there's always violence. There's always limits to speech. So, for example, look at the issue of dueling. People will get offended by someone saying something and say, I want to shoot you now, or let's have a fight. Look at our parliaments. Our parliament is set up for, for sword fighting. We look around the world in the 20th century, we're always seeing fights in parliament because there's always going to be someone you offend by your words and it's always met with violence so there's always a level of coercion there's always a level of power always at play so to ground our theory and this is always part of the enlightenment it's it's based on universalized abstractions when it doesn't take into account the real life experiences of people and this has always been the problem i feel like as well one of the things that happens and i know you talk about this in the book 
free speech also operates when it's within the public sphere, let's say within the media, as if the people that are having a conversation about an issue are starting from the same place and have the same experiences or the group that they represent have the same experiences. Like like what Tisa was just saying, that level of universalism, like it's so easy to show that that level of universalism is false, yet the public domain seems to just constantly want to lie to us that it's that that it's true that there is a universalism and I actually think you see this a lot within our own disciplines now within the social sciences within the universities more broadly this this notion of a universalism that we're all we're all starting in the same place we're all understanding things from the same point of view and that means that there should be an exchange like we've recently found out that people have been trying to basically get our podcast removed from reading lists it's not seen as like academic enough it's not seen as like scholarly enough whatever but like that notion of a universal knowledge or a universal way of being, it's so integral to this free speech bullshit as well. Like, and I just feel like there's other parts of the public domain and the personal domains that play into this and keep this stuff. I guess I'm just sort of basically saying what you say in the book. There's so many things that keep these these aspects of free speech intact because constantly, even within disciplines that are supposed to be critical. Like you're seeing this notion of universalism put forward as the actual, as the significant thing that we should all start, that we're all starting from. Mm. And it's just bullshit. It's a lie. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that interests me, uh, interested me in the book is why, why the a particular application of this understanding of the universality of, of debate as a modality of democratic participation, but also of democratic sort of flourishing. That if we all engage with each other in particular ways and under particular conditions and using particular sort of modes of discourse, that this results in, you know, not just sort of mutual forms of mutual understanding or increases in the human sum of knowledge, but also in, in results in forms of, you know, um, enhanced democratic procedure produces an enhanced democratic culture. And yet when we look around, when we look at the state of our democracies, when we look at the state of our public spheres, for want of a better word, um, they're quite obviously not like that. So one of the things that I, I, I was really trying to explain is why is this very heightened, very purified notion of debate as a modality of maximal freedom of expression always brought to bear so so sort of acutely on questions of race and racism, whereas there are whole other areas of political and social life where we wouldn't even begin to expect this. So when we cast our eye over, you know, over the mediascape on a given day, we take it for granted that there is, you know, endless political spin. We take it for granted that journalists are producing, you know, hot takes or first versions of history under, you know, at great speed and under extreme pressure. We take it for granted that people are communicating on social media in a whole variety of ways where the transmission of ideas or information is only one small part of that. But there's something in the ways in which this notion that if we have a proper debate on racism, we can resolve it. If we have a common understanding, if we have a shared definition, um, there's something in that that I was really trying to attract it to explain. And I suppose what I what I tried to look at there was what I, what I call the sort of productivity of this sort of set of post-racial assumptions or exceptionalisms that I talk about. And, and, and so you were pointing out, like when we were talking beforehand, about the ways that these there are similarities, but also differences across European contexts. And I, I write a lot here about, about sort of, you know, it's, it's a quite Eurocentric book, I suppose in that 
in, in that sense. But I'm looking here at the ways in which these sort of post-racial exceptionalisms produce particular stories as to how racism is something which has been predominantly overcome within uh, European societies. There is an official institutional commitment to, to anti-racism. There is a set of memorializations which are primarily focused around the Second World War and therefore in the context of the Holocaust and in the context of anti-Roma genocide. There is a central focus on race as understood as things you've discussed with on the podcast, for example, in detail with Alana, as overdetermined by its its sort of pseudo-biological heritage. That within that story is the assumption that racism is bad, racism is something which is evil, but racism mainly manifests itself in these very particular limited ways. It's either sort of individual pathology and attitudes which are out of out of time and out of joint, it's extremist movements, it's a reference to this heritage of of you know, this this sort of pseudo-racist heritage that we have we have jettisoned, even if as we know from Angela his work, it never went away, and it has been brought back in all kinds of important ways. But there's a way of setting up the understanding of racism, which says, look, this is what racism is, and this is what we oppose. But when you come along with your critical race theory, or when you come along with your analysis of racial capitalism, or when you come along with your fidelity, say, to Sivanandan, who I use in the book, who talks about racism never standing still because of changes in the political economy, but changes in the nature of, of political contestation and so on, and you want to try to name what racism is today, you want to try to describe how racialization takes place, you are shutting down debate by making everything into racism. And you're stopping us from talking about things which are important by making them about race. And so what I try to show in the book is that this is more than just kind of confusion over an understanding of racism. This is very politically productive, because what it's been used to do over the last 10 years is to recuperate racial ideas, to recuperate racial arguments by saying, look, we've told you we're against race. Racism. But now, can't we just have an open debate? Can't we have open inquiry? Can't we have viewpoint diversity when it comes to these issues? So that's the kind of intersection that I'm trying to, you know, I've got to go around the houses a long time to get there. But that's the kind of intersection that I'm trying to look at between, on the one hand, the sort of consequentialist heritage and freedom of speech, not just we should have the freedom to speak because it's an expression of our human autonomy, but in speaking we are contributing to the sum of human knowledge. And at the same time, this notion that, well, because we have sorted out what racism means and we have, for the most part, transcended it as a society, that what that has done is opened up this space that says, now can't we actually debate those things which we previously weren't allowed to debate because they were, you know, you ran the risk of being called a racist. And that's the kind of conjuncture, if you like, that I'm trying to get at. And I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about happen in terms of intensifications on that terrain, such as the far Right, for example, such as the kind of scholarship that we've mentioned, which is supremely dedicated to rehabilitating racializing logics, but by laying claim to the, the sort of value of open inquiry. The notion of free speech has become frozen, if you will, and that's become the kind of standard is this the abstraction. So they're saying but at this point, if you're talking about racism, it, it, you're talking about something that belongs to the past, it's an irrationality. And Free speech is held as a paragon of rationality. Like, this is cold, hard debate. This is what Ferber's knowledge or epistemology. So they talk about it in, a, in purely like a scientific term. Like, this is, you can debate these things now in a cold, scientific way without taking into account where power lies, where poverty lies, where all these intersections lie, where we, we all know the truth, but it's conceived of in that way. So when people are talking about it, they're saying Western societies have got to that point where so evolved that we can have a calm, 
rational debate and I can be as offensive as I want but because I don't really mean it. This is just the words that we use to describe whatever. So could it be the N-word or whatever it was just try to get a point across? But it, this kind of debate doesn't take into, into actuality the actual, like we kind of said before, the reality of the situation where power lies. And I think any analysis of free speech needs to understand where power lies, who has power. What Tiso saying reminds me a little bit about something that I've been struggling with this year in particular. Um, but I've definitely was helped by one of my top five books in this year is Alana's Alana's book, um, Why Race Still Matters. Like if you haven't read that book, like everyone just needs to read that book. But the reason why I'm bringing it is so sick, honestly, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> big up Alana. In Alana's book, what Tisa's talking about in terms of power, right? And one of the things that I think that I've tried to come to terms with this year is trying to think actually those people that are saying as you say Gavin right what I want to debate I'm debating racism with you because I want there to be an end point to racism and you keep saying to me all these different points about why racism happens like you're not letting me get an end to racism now one of the things that Alana's book has helped me me come to terms with is that that person who is asking for there to be an end to racism has an investment in racism and doesn't want there to be an end to racism I didn't really realize how much investment there was from that person who's calling from free speech for there not to be an end to racism so there it's not that they need to be led on a different route or a different way of understanding what racism is and how it manifests in all these different ways it's simply that they do not want to and because they have an investment in it and because there are loads of other people like them who they can convince that their way of thinking about racism is the right way and all those groups can benefit from that as well you obviously won't get any arguments from from me in relation to uh, alana's you know acuity on these issues and it is a great book and it's also one i think this book is written in dialogue in, in many ways yeah you know we, we read, it felt really read drafts of, of each other's as we're going along but definitely read really well together and they're both really good interventions but i think I said to you when we first started talking that like reading your book a little bit like what happens when I read Alana's book is I just felt really sad because it's like they're really they're really fucking us yeah, like yeah. and there's actually really there's this it's really hard to find not just hope but actual mechanisms to fight them on that not racism stuff. I think that's true. But for me, I mean, as I said, you know, uh, writing it made me sad too. Um, uh, now I'm, you know, um, sad emojis through, through the airwaves. But, but, but of course it did because, you know, the reason that we're here is that whatever way we want to describe it, we, we do believe in, you know, the free exchange of ideas to use that phrase. I mean, that, that is what we are here for. But the free exchange of ideas and, and, you know, one of the things that really irritates me about the contemporary free speech politics that lays claim to a certain liberal heritage is how little it understands it this is a bit of an aside you know but it's one of the things i look at in the book which is that you know the 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 act actual free exchange of ideas that leads to some sort of progress is one that happens under particular conditions. It happens under very rarefied conditions in the seminar room, as, as Mill himself, you know, was, was very, was very quick to point out. We shouldn't expect that to happen in, you know, a grossly commercialized, commodified, chaotic, uh, uh, and frenetic public sort of public communicative space. But what happens exactly, you know, Chantal, what you're talking about, about the sort of traps which are laid here, um, 
what Alana shows, I think, very well in the book is that when you have a situation where racism is something which is, you know, the subject is sanctioned for official sort of opposition under particular conditions. And those conditions are when racism is primarily understood, if you like, as ideas and ideology. And these are ideas and ideology which have been defeated. You know, they've been rooted out of, of, of the political culture. They've been rooted out of the universities. They've been rooted out of science, whatever it might be. But what's left from that is the idea that we're primarily talking about ideas and ideology. Now, of course, there is. And right now, um, I mean, the internet is full of enthusiastic, gleeful, ideological racist work. It's not to dismiss that, not for a moment. But that when you only talk about ideas and when you only talk about racism as an ideology, then what you do is you set up a notion that it is open to particular forms of, of, of engagement. It's open to particular forms of deliberative engagement through debate where these ideas can be disproved. Now, what that does, or it has, I think, a number of, of, of political effects. The first... And here again, I'm very keen to, to, to emphasize that there is so much in the liberal tradition on freedom of speech, which is contradictory and which is antagonistic between different writers and different ways of, of setting up the questions. That one of the things that sort of liberal free speech theory, to use Mondal's notion, is, is suspicious of is closure, is the idea that we have artificial or arbitrary closure on ideas. Because what that does, of course, is it prevents any kind of heterodoxy. It prevents something coming along that shakes up, uh, shakes up the orthodoxy, but also so it's something which, you know, it's, it simply prevents us from flourishing if there is artificial closure. Yet we're expected to abide by artificial closure on the definition and understanding of racism. It is these things. This is what racism is. This is what we are against. But when you then try to, as we said, historicize racism or talk about the ways in which racisms change and are reformatted and rearticulated under changing political, social, economic conditions, then that's taken as a form of essentially censorship that you make everything into race and you close down the possibility to have an honest debate. And that's what makes this shell game or that's what makes this contrarian trick so difficult is it's based on or what I try to show is that these everyday media tactics, these everyday sort of, you know, uh, so-called contrarian tactics are built on, on misunderstandings that have a far sort of a far more solid foundational infrastructure. And I think that that's what that does. And one of the things I write about in, in, in this book, but also in, in, in a book I brought out last year on racism and media is that when you throw this into the digital economy, where you have a an issue that has to be debated every five seconds, you put people who are being targeted by racializing ideas and targeted by racializing discourse constantly in the position of saying, you must debate it. And if you don't debate it, you are the one, actually, that's exhibiting the democratic deficit because these ideas are there to be refuted. Now, we were talking about this beforehand. There are conditions under which all kinds of debates or engagements may be necessary, but that's very often a strategic question. But what happens in these circumstances is is that anti-racism is regarded as censorious, either because it is shutting down debate by accusing you know, interlocutors of bad faith and accusing them of racism, it's always an accusation, or refusing to have debates because those debates are so obviously ritualized, those debates are so obviously predictable, they're so obviously based on talking points that keep circulating. And I think what we really need to argue for is end to the naivety, which assumes that, you know, the world starts every day again when we get up in the morning. Discourses have history, actors have history, and they bring these with them into their political and public engagements. And yet it's around questions of race and racism that this sort of of bright-eyed constantly renewed sort of naivety or, or or fidelity to a particular sort of way of thinking about ideas is assumed of us when people communicate they may communicate ideas but they do an awful lot of other things as well and yet in debates about racism we're expected to extract 
the first of all the ideology as an idea and extract it from the political act extract it from the communicative act and engage with it as something which is a deliberative proposition and this i think if we want to think about closure this is a system of closure it means that people are constantly being put into position not just of being targeted by racism but of thinking about how can i speak against this how will i be heard when i try to speak about this in particular ways i've been asked if i in the past when i've engaged with these people i engage and people in the kind of Western logic, so they make a they make a statement, I, and I have to kind of I have to justify or or bear the accusation and try to prove it or disprove them, and that has been my for a long time. That's been the thing that gets me up. I used to like that thing, but <laughs> after a while, pointless exercise because I can never disprove you because they keep moving the goalposts, and so it becomes an endless task of just repeating the same things or producing evidence that, like any evidence. If I produce it, you can discount it. You could say, well, I don't believe in that piece of evidence. And as we move further into this kind of crazy time period where sometimes they don't even need evidence, they're just talking emotively. So it's not even an argument about facts anymore. It's an argument about how they feel. As someone who would used to engage in this thing and, and kind of always even live for it, this thing is not going to help us anymore. This is a pointless background. It's a background which has, has no winners. It's like arguing with the wind. It's pointless. So... I guess for someone who's into left left wing politics, where do we engage with these people now? Mm. And I think we choose not to engage. We we build solidarities in echo chambers. We do other things to move the movement forward because this engagement is almost become a, it's almost become a parody of itself. The alt right have an alt right playbook. They tell you to engage on the basis of nonsense, to, in the case of nonsensical arguments. That's how much of a meme we are. So, um, T, yeah. T, I think you've picked up on something that I feel like we've seen really step up in the last year. And I, I've never really thought about it like that until you until you just said that in terms of them enacting their feelings. So we kind of saw that. We've seen that obviously build up on the alt-right and the far-right over the years. But something that we've seen, like the right-wing media and politicians, so them enacting their feelings... And I'm thinking particularly about like the Lawrence Fox type. It's the end of October now. And we've just had the whole free school meals thing. And you had Tory MP, I think it was Nikki Morgan, who basically said that during the debate, because the debate wasn't done in a way that was respectful, that they didn't feel like they needed to engage or they didn't feel like there was, they didn't feel like the debate was coming from a place of neutrality because you didn't say this to me nicely I'm not I'm not engaging or I'm not doing this and that's really interesting and quite scary because there that can there is a lot of people that racialized as white that happen to be middle class in particular and the, the more broader multi-ethnic multiracial middle class as well that can really play on some of their sensitivities I think mm. in a way that maybe we haven't seen for a long time so actually I've shown you as Tiso said time and time again that structural racism exists I've shown you through statistics that what the colonial legacies are of empire I've shown you that slavery built your banks I've shown you all this stuff it still doesn't matter you still want to debate this stuff with me keep debating with you keep debating with you I'm showing you time and time again that what you're saying you the debate of my humanity is not a just debate I keep showing you that and now it's got so far that they're able to flip that and say, because we're not saying it to them in a nice enough way, they don't want to engage or that the things that we're trying to put in the forefront are not valid. And that is really scary, but very interesting, obviously, um, from a sociological point of view as well. By virtue of not answering or not stepping up, I lose. 
This is how it works in people's heads. If I don't say anything, I've lost. This is why people feel the, the need to kind of react because you think you're trained in your head to enter this dialogue. If someone says a point that you disagree with, I challenge that and we will debate it, but that's not how it works in real life. There's always power plays, there's other factors in, but at its base, if someone asks you a question and they challenge you, you don't answer, you lose. And that's what the right says. If we keep making enough noise and drown these people and they don't answer, your side's lost. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one, one, one of the things that kept coming back to me around these questions when, when I was trying to write about them was that on the one hand, if we want to talk about, you know, a kind of right wing contrarian economy, uh, media economy, and we also want to talk about the ways in which, say, the far right now sort of, you know, to use the term weaponized freedom of speech, one aspect of that is the analysis of tactics. The other aspect of it is the analysis of what are the sort of structures of supposition that allow this to work so productively for them and against other forms of politics and other forms of, of, of public engagement or public deliberation, even whatever it might be. And one of the problems is that there's a sort of, um, and it's something I use in the book from the work of James Carey, who makes a very nice, it's a very simple distinction, but it's a nice one, where he talks about, you know, so much of the way in which we think about speech as communication is is focused on the notion of transmission. You know, we must transmit ideas. And, you know, obviously that's what we're trying to do here. It's from A to B. I need to transmit something to you. And what that does when we enter into, as you said, a dialogue is that there's backwards and forwards, there's transmission of ideas and the best ideas win out and all of these other notions we associate with this sort of rarefied, oh, sort of idealist fantasy of a of marketplace of ideas or whatever it might be. But what Kerry points out is that actually a lot of, of, and he's talking more sociologically here than politically, a lot of communication, of course, will have some kind of transmissive dimension, but it also has very strong ritual dimensions. You know, it's about the maintenance of relationships. So think about, for example, he uses the idea of going to a religious service where you know there are no spoilers you know what's going to happen it's not about the transmission but it's about the ritual communication that you partake in with others so there are ritual dimensions which are always involved in in political speech always involved in taking a particular sort of position in in public or whatever it might be and what the contemporary rice does very well is it plays on the relationship between these. And let's say, for example, that thing a few years ago in the States where the alt-right was looking to speak at universities the whole time. What it was trying to do was to say, hey, look, we have ideas that deserve to be debated, right? We are transmitting those ideas and you should be able to refute them. But of course, the political logic is a ritual one. We're going to take up space. We're going to ensure there's protest. We're going to make sure that there's a a consensus mobilized around this, which says, you know, you should have a debate because, you know, a debate is how democracy progresses. It's about how ideas progress. So they occupy that in ways which are very, very powerful because they win either way. If you debate them, then you're engaging with ideas that don't have any deliberative potential. They are ideological statements that attempt to occupy space and they attempt to do something in the world. So, you know, these actors are well aware that when they speak, there's multiple modalities to that communication. Transmission is only a very small part of it. Other ideological effective dimensions of it are what's important. The political aspect of it, the political occupation of space is what's important. When we have this in certain ways of thinking about the university, for example, or certain ways of thinking about media balance, when we have this um, studiously naive assumption that communication is primarily about the transmission of ideas, then that kind of, you know, 
we could call it trawling, we could call it strategizing, we can call it what it want. It gets a particular form of generativity from that. So this is what I mean about, you know, if I was to write another chapter in, in this book, partly it would be about, you know, it would be about Tissa, what you're talking about is what under these conditions, um, when there is a, a, a constant pressure, let's say, because we're, we're talking here about, you know, racism and anti-racism, there's a constant pressure on public anti-racism to engage in particular ways in, in visions of public deliberation. And these notions are so saturated with the democratic heritage that if you don't do this, you are the one who's actually withdrawing from democratic democratic procedures. Under those conditions, um, what is the value of communication? What forms of engagement are productive? What kinds of public uh, communication should we be looking to develop? And I think that that's where you're absolutely right. There maybe is a is an argument for, you know, occupying that language of the of the contemporary culture war right that is constantly talking about safe spaces or filter bubbles or echo chambers as a particular form of democratic fragmentation and instead to say no what needs to happen is there needs to be however they're formed there needs to be spaces where people can come together for meaningful meaningful forms of political discourse where they can co-create and collectively develop ideas that stand outside of these circuitries of, of content circulation that make um, collective thought and that make sort of public concept making, that make political argumentation so difficult. And one of the things I try to sort of distinguish between in the book, on the one hand, is this imaginary of debate as a sort of, you know, set of, of, of assumptions that organize democratic participation and engagement, and what I call debatability, which is the way in which you get this constant circulation of very predictable and very ritual material in digital networks, which are dedicated in corporate and commercial terms, they're dedicated to the endless circulation of discourse. They're dedicated to the endless hosting of debate. And it is very, very difficult, I think, for, you know, for us, I use it broadly as I suppose the sort of the left in that sense, to engage under those conditions. I used to be of the mind that I had the power of rightness behind me. So through logic, my epistemology was displayed evidentially. I had all the arguments. But what happens when you meet an actor, when you engage in free speech, who doesn't care? It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how right I feel I am. They just disagree. What do you do then? Where is free speech then? Where do you go? I'm convinced I'm right because I have all this evidence. But I've met people who don't care. They're just in it just to say I'm wrong. Where does free speech go if, if the actor doesn't care what you say? So it's about sometimes I think about the left to reconsider how we engage because those terms of engagement are not the same. And this is one of the problems that we, the left have a problem with. We want to prove we're right. What's the terms of engagement? How are we engage this person? What are the rules? The rules for each person, each actor is completely different. We're coming at it from a certain perspective. They're coming from a different different point of view. End up having a conversation which is basically nonsense. And it's tiring. One person seems to think they're winning because they don't care. They're, they're kind of, like you say, recirculating that narrative over and over again. And I'm getting here frustrated because I'm upset because they're not engaged on the same terms as I stepped So I'm thinking this is like fair play. But equally, so is he. Is he thinking it's well on on their terms? When I speak to them in real life, they think they actually they think this is this is a proper argument, and they're just saying, well, in their terms, prove it, prove it, prove it. But I'm taking the bait, I'm biting, so I'm I'm going, I'm trying this all this evidence, but it, it didn't matter. But what I'm thinking is, in terms of the people that that call for the free speech, is that they they know that it's not that yeah, the terms aren't yeah even quote unquote even yeah. If you um dig up the alt right playbook. 
that's it's clear in that book that they tell them they tell they, they tell their followers that they understand the terms of engagement and they tell you to, they tell you to make it as ludicrous as possible as ridiculous as possible because they go they they know the terms of engagement are different they know people will bite because in people's heads they have this liberal notion of a, a set of a marketplace of ideas and ideas should be freely exchanged yeah. I think that's one of the things that really puzzles me about the contemporary moment exactly like that is that, you know, and, and, and I haven't, I think, really fully worked this out for my, myself yet. But, you know, the, the way in which so much of this um, anxiousness about our capacities to to communicate and for that communication to do something publicly, to be meaningful, so much of that anxiety gathers around this question of freedom of speech. And in so many of the ideas that were, or so many of the examples that we're throwing around here, there, the, the, the freedom of speech in the sense of, you know, the capacity to express oneself as a human without coercion is not really in question. Now, for many people right now at this moment, in all kinds of ways, it absolutely is in question. But as I said at the start, this has so, got so little to do with the contemporary sort of cultural formations around freedom of speech that I'll just put that to the side for one moment. Instead, so much of the anxiety is about the sort of consequentialist dimensions of freedom of speech. In other words, our capacity to, 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 to understand, our capacity to cooperate, our capacity to advance knowledge or whatever it might be. And so there's a lot of anxiety then that refuses to differentiate the different kinds of communication uh, that overlap with each other in the public realm. I, I think I said this earlier, we know that so much of political communication is staging and spectacle. We know that when we speak with others, that so much of what we say is, is driven by affect and emotion and engagement and a history with others. We know that when we listen to speeches um, by any sort of political actor that they're choreographed, we know that when we engage in the media that we're looking at something which has been edited and curated in various kinds of ways. We know all of this. And yet on certain issues, this consequentialist anxiety comes back very, very strongly. And I think that that's, that's what creates the pressures for you know for the for the left and the anti-racist left more generally and i think unless we start to understand these dynamics in more detail and not just understand the tactics but also the ways in which these tactics become meaningful then one of the things that you get very often in sort of left debates about freedom of speech is we need to reclaim it we need to reclaim it from the hypocrisy of the right or whatever it might be and i think yes we do yeah. but reclaiming yeah. it is not simply saying that the le- that the right is being hypocritical because on the one hand they're beating up students and they're beating up LGBTQ people and they're beating up, you know, trade union officers and they're beating up racialized people. And on the other hand, they want their freedom of speech. Of course, their politics is absolutely riven with hypocrisy, but it doesn't work because of hypocrisy. It works because of the ways in which these very particular understandings of the value of speech come to function in certain political formations. And I think that, you know, um, when did this 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 kind of the gathering clouds start to gather around freedom of speech? I think if we were having this discussion twenty years ago, it really wouldn't be present in any very meaningful way. I mean, it was it was always there as a part of you know the right wing playbook. Let's say going way back, Evan Smith's book on on no platform, for example, is very good on this. But if we were having a debate about freedom of speech, let's say broadly on the left, we'd be looking at questions of material access: who owns the media? What are the different ways in which meaningful structures of communication can be established, and what do they do? for building sort of, you know, collective intellect. If we were talking about this in terms of critical race theory, we'd be talking about the need to, you know, understand language and understand speech as something more than simply ethereal, that it's also an act and that acts have consequences, which may be very difficult to measure empirically, but nevertheless do something in the world. And then we could also be having a kind of very Habermasian discussion about the public sphere and how ideal communication works and so on. 
Now, I think in the, in the public space that we have now, you have lots of people engaging at great speed and great velocity with each other that come from very different foundational starting points in how they think about speech and in how they think about communication as an act and as something that does something politically. And because of that, I think there's a sort of default to, to, to these sets of ideas that if we, unless we default to these ideas, we won't have any capacity for public engagement or any capacity for sort of interaction. And I think that that's a mistake. I think what we've got to do if we want to reclaim freedom of speech is to start also to think about not just to ensure that the question of coercion is what's central to a politics of freedom of speech, but we also need to start thinking about who's listened to under these conditions, who is heard under these conditions, what are the spaces that can be made meaningfully um, in a context where digital media, for example, allows us to do more, but also means that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're doing something in increasingly fragmented and increasingly sort of frenetic, frenetic contexts. I think there's lots of questions about meaningful communication that would allow us to sort of reshape this debate without always going through the prism of what is and what isn't freedom of speech. It's in its messiness. It's in its complexity. I think modern societies, don't, we don't handle that quite well. So there's all these conversations taking place and it's that disorder that scares us. And we try to either approach it from a, a Marxist orthodoxy, critical race orthodoxy, or a right-wing orthodoxy, when, like you said, the trajectories of these conversations are so fast and rapid that we're looking to try and make sense at this moment. And right now, what well, communication is so wide and varied and happening in different types and different ways, and it, it keeps going. So one of the things I was always also shocked at is like TikTok. <laughs> When I'm looking at kids express themselves in 15 seconds, if you say that to someone of my generation, that's an essay. I have to write that down and plan that. But they do it on the fly. They communicate abstract things on the fly. And that whole level of communication is something new. It's something that hasn't been categorised. It's something that's new and happening now and evolving. So the state that is in now, in two years' time, it will not be the same. How do you make sense of this? Not in relation to the established orthodoxies, because come the way of thinking that they're almost not useless, but almost redundant now. That time's gone. It's gone. It's 2020 plus. How do we account for the way we speak now? A lot of people we speak now, like a lot of especially like older people, look at young kids and think, well, they keep talking and they have no concentration. But when I say these kids are talking on several levels, they're talking to their friends on whatever device, talking to you in the front room and listening to music all at once. Blows my mind. Well, in terms of showing your age, I hope you saw in the chat, I was like writing there, what's TikTok, you know, but, uh... <laughs> but no, I mean, I wish that we could just talk about this stuff for just forever because it's, it literally fascinates me and Tiso so much. It's something that I feel like is kind of at the crux of what we discuss on Surviving yeah. Society as well. Gavin, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. It was great to talk with you both. Listeners, thank you so much. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 